From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. He's a legend. He's an icon. He's a statue. I'm talking about David, the David of the Bible. But is the David of the Bible anywhere close to the historical person of David? My guest is Joel Baden. He's a professor at Yale University, and his book is The Historical David, The Real Life of an Invented Hero. Welcome, Professor Baden, to Religion for Life. Thanks for having me. Very interested in this book, The Historical David, The Real Life of an Invented Hero. Uh, One thing I was wondering about with this text, is um, is there anything that we know about David outside of the Bible? The short answer, in fact, really the only answer, is no. Uh, There is nothing from the period of what should have been David's life that uh, we have discovered archaeologically that can be absolutely decisively connected with David. Um, There are buildings in Jerusalem that are from that period that have been connected with him tentatively, but nothing that, you know, has his name over the door. Uh, There are no... Uh, inscriptions, that is, extra-biblical writings uh, from the period of David's life that mention him. The closest thing we have is a 9th century uh, inscription in Aramaic um, that was found in Israel that refers to Israel as the house of David, which at the best, I think, suggests that, you know, David is not invented, uh, as some people Seem to seem to think that you know there's this notion that David was an invention of uh, these biblical writers to give themselves a glorious uh, founding hero. Uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, these uh, these Arameans who wrote this inscription also invented uh, Israel's glorious founding hero. So the mention of a house of David in this ninth century inscription is the closest thing we have to you know, evidence. Uh, for David's existence, but we have nothing contemporaneous. Uh, the Bible is by far, by far our best source of information. So, so no, no stories at all about him outside of the Bible itself? Nothing. So what about other figures in the Bible going uh, previous to David? Would, would that be the same situation? And there, there's nothing that we would know about Abraham or Moses nothing. or Joshua. So the Ab- same kind of thing. Ab- absolutely not. Right. The, the first, uh, the first historical figure in the Bible that we have mention of directly outside of it um, is probably the Israelite king Omri, uh, who is in the ninth century. Then again, there we also have reference to the house of Omri, that is his royal lineage. Um, And there is a depiction of the Israelite king Jehu. Uh, That one is very, very clear. I actually have a picture of him on a offering uh, a dedication to a Mesopotamian king. But, uh, it, you know, there's, there's not a lot of extra-biblical evidence for uh, the existence of too many biblical figures until you get later into the monarchy. So even Solomon isn't uh, under—there's uh, nothing about That's him right. outside of the Bible. That's right. I mean, the best we get are archaeological excavations of buildings that can be linked in theory— to various uh, reigns of monarchs, you know, when there, when you find uh, really substantial, significant, monumental architecture, right, the kind of thing that only a centralized state could produce, 
then we can say things like, well, there must have been a centralized state, there must have been a king, the timing seems to fit. Um, occasionally, biblical references to, you know, there's biblical references to Solomon built, um, built up these uh, fortified cities at X, Y, and Z, and when we excavate X, Y, and Z, we find that there's similar architecture at them, which might lead to the suggestion that it was indeed Solomon who did this, but that's the closest we're going to get. All right, so so best when we're looking at this, we're looking at okay, here here is a narrative, a saga, some kind of story about this figure, but it and it looks kind of historical and it looks kind of legendary. How do you go about um, piecing these things or, or pulling these things apart? What what is the historical task behind looking at a story, say of of David and Goliath or, or something like that, and saying uh, and how how do you tell if it's historical or or fiction? Right, so it's the the line between history and fiction is a uh, it can be a thin one, right? Both mm-hmm. are both are told in the same sort of style. That is, I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened, and you know, as is so often the case, uh, even today, right? If a no- if many novels, if they didn't say on the front page a novel, uh, you might not or, or were listed under fiction, you might not know the difference between that and a uh, a book that purports to be history. Sure. So the 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 genre of uh, it's sort of, you know, call it historical fiction, if you will. Uh, there are elements of reality. There are elements that are not real. And your question is, uh, is, is the right one. How can you tell when reading a text whether which parts are real and which parts may be uh, expanded or invented or elaborated or exaggerated? So there are a few, I think, basic, uh, basic tasks here. Uh, from the historian's perspective... And I realize that this is not um, not the kind of thing that sits well necessarily with everybody. But from the historian's perspective, whenever God becomes involved, we have to step back and say, "I can't, you know, I, I can't take that at face value." Mm-hmm. Which is not which is not a statement about the existence of or non-existence of God, but it exists. It, the historian's job always is to figure out what could possibly be um, verified, right? What's verifiable? Right, what seems like it could be likely given what we know. And nothing in the realm of the supernatural falls into that category. Sure. Similarly, when we get reports in the Bible about a character's inner thoughts, mm-hmm. that's, that's something that in theory only the historical figure could have access to. And so when we see in the story David thought something or David felt something, well, unless David is the author, that is by necessity, an element that the author ha- that you know the the narrator has has given us uh, private conversations, right? Uh, if, if we discovered uh, the report of a conversation between that occurred between two people and there was no one else there, then how did the author of this story know it? Right. Now, so often it is these moments, right? The interruption of the divine into the human affairs, monologues or internal thoughts, private dialogues. So often when we're reading the Bible, it's these moments uh, where we find the most overt sort of theological messaging, right? the most overt statements about, in this case, David's being destined to be king, for example, or David's righteousness. Um, so there's a link that is between the kinds of narrative devices that are historically unverifiable and the kind of theological programming that 
seems to speak to a particular agenda on the part of the writers. And that's, I think, not at all coincidental, the fact that those two things coincide so often. Yeah, so when you, when, the, when it seems as I was reading your book, yeah, um, I don't know if this is a, an historical criterion, but the author seems to protest too much. Um, Constantly. Uh, and so when you Constantly. see them, when they're really making an apology for the goodness of David or, or the divine right or, or something that just really, they just want to tell the story, uh, you, you right. know that's a story. That's right. For example, in the beginning of David's story, when he is in Saul's court and he is you know, sort of making his way up the ranks of, uh, of, of Saul's sort of royal hierarchy, we, are, we hear over and over again how many people love David. Saul loves David. Uh, Jonathan loves David. Michal, Saul's daughter, loves David. The people at large love David. The soldiers love David. Right? So we, you, you cannot help but, uh, but get the message from reading this. Boy, everybody really, right? David was beloved. Uh, David was loved so much that it begins to seem quite natural to us that he should become king. And so he, we, and you, and you, dear reader, should love David too. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, many of the characters in the in the in the biblical story are meant to stand in for the reader. So when you know, if Saul and Jonathan, right, uh, Jonathan especially, Jonathan who should have been king after Saul, but he wasn't. Right, David was. Mm-hmm. But if the person who should have become king after Saul loved David to the degree that Jonathan is said to love David, how could we as the reader, who have far less stake in the succession of the monarchy than Jonathan did, surely we should love David also. Uh, similarly, in terms of overemphasis, there are moments when a character dies around David, and this happens quite often in David's life. And uh, the narrator repeats, I mean, within a single chapter, repeats five or six times, right, the, the person who died had left David's presence before he was killed. Right? He was not in the same place as David. There's no way David could have done this. Just over and over. So at the end of it, how could you think anything other than, well, clearly David couldn't have done it. But in, these are moments where, as you say, it's protesting too much. Right? If there weren't some argument to be made there, why would we need to repeat that? Um, and so nobody end, ever thought that David did these things. Why do I have to be told over and over again that he didn't? If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Professor Joel Baden of Yale University. He's the author of The Historical David, uh, The Real Life of an Invented Hero. So can you give us a sketch? Who, what was the historical David really like? Well, you know, it, there are parts that are quite easy. As a historian, the parts that we can talk about with some certainty, with any degree of certainty, are events, right? I can say fairly certainly, I think, um, you know, about when he lived and about what he did, but not so much who he was as a man, right? That's, that's something that is, uh, is lost to us, I think, over the 3,000 years uh, mm-hmm. that intervene. But then again, from his actions, you can extrapolate something of, of the man behind them. Uh, David was... Uh, from a sort of backwater town, uh, Bethlehem. He was a shepherd's kid. He ended up in the military, as most people, I think, back then did of, uh, uh, you know, at the right age. He made his way up the ranks of the military, probably because he was a very good soldier. And he started, at some point, uh, to get 
uh, you know, delusions of grandeur might be too strong, uh, but ambitions. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was clearly an ambitious fellow. Right? The, the, the basic rule of thumb is back in the days when monarchies were uh, sort of dynastically successive, that is, the king was expected to be followed by his son and by his son and his son, anybody who was not of the royal line and ended up being king must have wanted it. Right? You cannot fall into the kingship in, in, in that sort of system. Right. And yet David becomes king eventually, having been a nobody shepherd boy. So he must have been ambitious. Uh, his ambition led him to do some risky things. Uh, I suspect that he attempted to take the throne from Saul. Um, I think there's evidence for that in the, in the biblical story. Um, as I argue in the book, he ends up on the run from Saul when his, his coup attempt fails. He ends up working for a long time for Israel's archenemy, the Philistines. And eventually, I think with their help, he comes to be, he, he comes to be a king first of the southern territory of Judah and then eventually of uh, all of Israel. And his reign was probably a relatively repressive one, which is you know, not so unusual back in that time. Most kingships were repressive back then. Uh, I don't think that he was much loved. Again, I'm not sure how many kings would have been loved uh, back then. Uh, but, you know, he, he made a fairly good go of it uh, for a, a person who never had any right to be on the throne in the first place. He got it. He maintained it even uh, while, it was, while people were trying to take it away from him. And he lived a pretty good long time. Uh, so, you know, he was an ambitious, successful, but ruthless sort of leader. There are, uh, his story is littered with corpses, littered with corpses of political enemies. And there's no getting around it. And, you know, in order to gain and maintain the throne, he had to do a lot of dirty things that we probably uh, don't associate with, you know, this figure who is not only sort of the most famous king, but also ancestor of the Messiah in both Jewish and Christian tradition, and, uh, you know, model for later kings and the author in the tradition of the Psalms. You know, there's lots of good things that are associated with David. Yeah, right. He, he has a pure heart. Or we think about all of that right. kind of thing. I mean, this and is, wrote, this wrote the, the Psalms, you know. Just right, the New, Testament, New Testament says, right, a man after God's own heart. Right, yeah. Right. A man after God's own heart, who, as you point out in the book, actually did genocide against the Jebusites to get Jerusalem. Yeah, I mean, I think he had he had no scruples about the sorts of uh, activities and behavior that it took to get the power that he wanted. The Jebusites are are one of those examples that we almost never think about, right? That Jerusalem before David was a independent enclave of a ethnic community, um, the Jebusites, who after David disappear entirely from the record. Uh, David is said to have wiped them out, and I sort of believe that he probably did, or at least uh, wiped out enough of them that they ceased to exist. Um, these days, if there were a small enclave of you know, an independent ethnic community, and they were wiped out, uh, and actually we're seeing exactly that in Iraq right now, mm-hmm. uh, the word genocide gets used for that. And I don't think, I don't think it's far off for what David did. But, you know, we love David, so we, we ignore or excuse these kinds of things. Yeah, we kind of just follow along uh, with what the narrator 
tells us. I mean, it's not so yep. much a literal reading. It's it's a reading that just privileges the narrator's point of view. We learn quickly what the narrator wants us to to know and to believe. And we that's right. And you know, and 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 we're programmed from the very beginning, right? The very beginning of David's story, the first time we meet David, is God says to the prophet Samuel, I need someone to replace Saul, and I need you to go find me uh, the replacement. He's already said that this person will be a man after my own heart, so says God. And so when Samuel comes and finds David and anoints him, privately, secretly, but anoints him as Saul's successor, everything is laid out for us. We know that he should become king. So everything that happens to get there is, seems perfectly natural, even though historically it's totally unnatural for him to become king. And everything he does is filtered through the lens of man after God's own heart. And so, uh, you know, this is the power of narrative. It's the power of, uh, of the author, right, to shape the way that we think about historical events and story. And especially without having access to any other version uh, it, you know, there's there's a reason that for the last two, three thousand years, David has increased in stature. Um, right. So uh, did David write any of the Psalms? I can't say he wrote none of the Psalms, but I can say that David isn't the author of the Psalms as, as a whole or even in the majority. You know, the, the tradition about David being uh, the author of the Psalms is quite an, quite an old one. Uh, it goes back... I think, to the story about David playing the lyre for Saul, where we mm-hmm. understand him as a musician, and it reaches full expression, I think, in the, uh, in the works of, of the rabbis, uh, who, who say in the Talmud, David wrote the book of the Psalms. Um, he is definitely linked with the Psalms. He's linked with the temple in general, uh, and with that sort of singing and, and worship that happened there. We, uh, but but in, in, in the book of Psalms, where we see titles like a Psalm of David, which we see famously, you know, on sort of the most famous Psalm of them all, right, Psalm 23, um, uh, it says a Psalm of David, and then, and then on it goes. Uh, the Psalm of David in Hebrew does not mean a Psalm by David, and I think that's an important distinction. Uh, so I, I think that historically, he did not write the Psalms. Um, it doesn't mean that he couldn't have written one or two, but we have no way of knowing which ones they are. And, it, you know, he, he was a fairly busy guy. Kings don't yeah. really have the, didn't have the leisure time back then to sit around writing poetry, despite all of the Renaissance paintings that show him doing just that. And, of course, it serves the whole myth of David, of being, I mean, the idea that he wrote the Psalms or oh, had this intimate connection with the divine. Um, absolutely. You know, David. David is the original, I think, warrior poet, right? He's the, mm-hmm. this, this, this wonderful character who both fights wars for God and writes poetry for God. Um, and this, this is the multiple ways to express faith, right? Faith in, in song, faith in, 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 in words, and faith in action. Uh, it's, you know, it crystallizes uh, sort of the whole, the whole David legend, uh, the fact that the very first two things we learned about him are the liar playing and the slaying of Goliath. And these are the two elements I think are most most fictional, most legendary in the biblical account itself. Yeah. So, um, okay, uh, just jump to a, a bigger question, perhaps outside mm-hmm. of history, but, but the effects of this. Uh, how important is the David legend, uh, for example, to Judaism or, or to Christianity? And, and what might it mean um, 
to have David be, as you write, kind of, kind of a successful monarch, but a, a vile human being. You wrote it uh, in the conclusion. Uh, I, mean, I mean, he's a ruthless guy. It's really about politics yep. and, and ambition, and David's there. So what, 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 what do you think that means for uh, as we deconstruct the myth yeah, of David? Yeah, so, you know, David is, of all the characters in the Old Testament, certainly the most central, I think, to Christianity. Uh, David is the ancestor of Jesus, genealogically, and typologically, right? David is the sort of Mm -hmm. proto-Messiah. There's a reason that Jesus is referred to as, you know, son of David, uh, particularly. So there is absolutely an investment in David being a model, right? And so therefore having a, you know, being positive. Uh, In Judaism, David is also the forerunner of of the Messiah, the ancestor of the Messiah, uh, the Messiah that has not come yet in Judaism. But in Judaism, David is, is more than that, right? David is you know, the symbol, uh, especially today, uh, for modern Israel. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, Jews can be attached to Moses and the laws in a way that Christians aren't, but David is always the, the active, right, the active figure. Um, uh, the star of David is on the flag. Uh, you know, there's just, David is, is, is all over modern Israel and all over Judaism, and every Jewish kid grows up singing songs about David. I don't think there are any songs about Moses, not that I know of. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we all grew up singing, singing songs about David. Um, you know, David, again, as the warrior poet, as the, the brave and the successful and the powerful, right? These are all the things that Judaism for so long wasn't but aspired to, and now in Israel really is. Um, so David is a very important symbol. Th- there is a, a risk therefore, in trying, in, in trying to see whether David was actually maybe not so great a guy. Well, that's right, what I was kind of wondering, too, that risk. I mean, have you gotten any pushback on your book, uh, particularly from an ideology that wants David to be kind of left alone? Uh, yeah, here and there, here and there, particularly from conservative uh, writers, mostly Christian, um, who, mm. you know, like the David that they grew up with, right, mm. or, or like the positive portrayal of David that's you know, on the surface of the biblical text. And, you know, I think it's important to say that there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we do have a positive portrayal of David in the biblical text. We do have a positive David in our sort of stream of tradition, and that is a perfectly acceptable thing, right? I'm not suggesting in the book that the way that our faith traditions think about David should really be affected. What I'm suggesting is our faith traditions and our sort of belief claims about David, our stories about David that we are, you know, transmitted over the generations need to be understood as exactly that, right? As stories and about, as legend and as constructions of tradition as opposed to historical fact. Right? When we say, right, I believe that David was a glorious, you know, and righteous king like the Bible says, that's a perfectly great thing to say. To say, this is how David historically was, that's, that's a different sort of, right? there's a difference between a historical claim and a faith claim. And I think drawing that distinction is really important. Yeah, and, 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 and we might find that even the actual historical person might be better for us in some ways. I'm thinking, you know, this is throughout uh, biblical literature. I mean, searching for the historical Jesus or uh, Acts, understanding um, uh, Acts as idealized history, and right. which it's actually far more complicated and perhaps even more interesting to find the real person. When you read about David, the David in the Bible, he's 
complicated to a degree, but he's also, you know, chosen by God and, you know, a man after God's own heart. And who could be that? Uh, mm-hmm. But we all see and understand and recognize you know, the kind of ambition you see in David, uh, the historical David. Uh, we see it all around us in politics today, right? There's a, rel- a, a greater relevance uh, for the historical David. We also have a, it also gives us a way of seeing what kinds of choices our traditions have made over the centuries, over the millennia, uh, to get us to the sort of legendary David that we think of today. What does it mean that we, our, our traditions created a David that has particularly positive attributes, and these particularly positive attributes? Uh, we created that out of a man who didn't have any of them. So we learn something about ourselves and about what our values are by seeing that we have created a character that has those values. Yeah, it's it's well. Every nation has its own mythology. You think of America Absolutely. and and all of its manifest destiny. You know, and the purity of the founding fathers and and whatnot. Exactly. Uh, and so exactly. We, and I, you know, I think I say in the book. Right, uh, our founding fathers, founding figures are always idealized. We have idealized our founding fathers to an extraordinary degree. I mean, such that when facts are emerge about them, we often don't want to believe them. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had an affair with one of his uh, slaves, right? That was a, a major story, uh, because that's not how you think about Thomas Jefferson. Um, right? For religious people, often, right, the idea that Thomas Jefferson was a deist Right, it's something they absolutely push back against because he's a founding father. You know, founded uh, the nation was founded on Christian values. How could he, you know, not be a believer the way that we are believers? Founding figures are always uh, idealized and are become mirrors of the society that is uh, uh, that has emerged from them. Right, so we project ourselves back onto the founding figures. So that when we look back at them, we say, yes, we are proud to have come from such a person. It's totally natural. Sure. I have, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of popped my balloons with David was the story of David and Jonathan. I've kind of uh, always thought that was kind of a great movement for LGBT equality. You know, David loves Jonathan and Mm -hmm. all of that. But gosh, as I read the historical David, he kind of, uh, the story might be that he really just used Jonathan uh, or... Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. There is... I, I think that there is an LGBTQ aspect to it, which is I think that the Bible does present at least Jonathan as being, I'm fairly certain, romantically attached to David. You know, mm-hmm. some of the language, uh, some, you know, there are lots of ways to express love and affection in the Bible. And some of them are ambiguous and can have more to do with sort of loyalty and um, friendship. And some of them are romantic, uh, lustful. And, the words that the Bible uses for Jonathan's affections for David fall, I think, into the latter camp, right? They are romantic love. Um, and the Bible doesn't denigrate that at all, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. say that there's something horrifically wrong with that. In fact, it seems like David is perfectly willing to, in the story, to go along with it because, I mean, as you say, because it gets him where he wants to go, right? It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty good thing to have the king's son in love with you. Um, the alluded to homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan is, I think it's in the text. I think it's in the story. Whether it's historically true or not, I can't say. But I think the fact that the Bible has no problem portraying that as 
what may have happened. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing for uh, for the cause. We're just out of time. My guest is Joel Baden, a professor of Old Testament at Yale University, the author of an excellent book, The Historical David, The Real Life of an Invented Hero. Uh, Joel, thank you for this book and for being with me today on Religion for Life. My pleasure. I had a very nice time. You've been listening to Religion for Life at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schack, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find links to podcasts, including a podcast to this very program, at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well. Be well.